Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Joy Gruitz. Good morning, good morning. If you remember back in January on a Sunday morning that isn't as beautiful as today, we were in a summer series called One Thing, and during that series I had an opportunity to share with you an analogy about life, how life is like a puzzle. It can, and if you remember, I talked about a Rubik's Cube and how just as there are 43 quintillion moves that you can make in solving that puzzle, it can seem like we have 43 quintillion decisions that we have to make throughout our lives. But we are blessed that God gave us a solution book, the Bible, his inspired words that are meant to be that lamp and light to direct the steps of our lives to help us make those right decisions and how the Bible has also been given to us so that his inspired words can be active and alive in our lives, perfecting and strengthening our faith. But this morning I wanna share with you yet another analogy about life. And we find it in Hebrews 12. It says, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. See, there is no question that God has a plan and purpose for each one of our lives. And another way of saying that is that the Lord has set before us a race to run. Everyone has a race, but it's not all going to look the same because we each have a distinct life to live. But what is the same in every race that is set before us, it is a race that is going to require endurance and perseverance. Now, by profession, I was a teacher, and for most of my career, I spent my time teaching middle school students. I know some of you kind of groan with that, but actually, I loved it. And one of my colleagues that I really admired was the art teacher, because not only did he have this awesome artistic ability, and it was awesome to just watch what he could create, but he also had that gift to connect with students and to be able to help them be inspired to use whatever talent they have. But Mark wasn't just a passionate art teacher. He was also a passionate track coach. But he always operated under one distinct disadvantage in our middle school. You see, our student population was smaller than most. And so those schools that we competed against always had more kids on their team. And so that meant there were times that Mark didn't have enough students to field every event for a track meet. And other times he had enough, but never to field it with any depth. And so one year he decided that he was going to change his tactics, that he was going to try to get as many students as he could to try out and be part of his track team. And so you would hear Mark over the morning PA system saying, come out, come to the track meeting, join the track team. There would be posters in the hall. He would even, between classes, be out there trying to recruit students. Well, after that first track meeting, do you know that he had probably over 100 students that signed up for his track team? And Mark was ecstatic. This was going to be his best year ever. But you know, after several weeks of track practice, Mark's enthusiasm began to wane. 
because he had all these students who were so excited about the fact that they're going to wear this uniform, they were going to they get to be with their friends after school, and that they one day they're going to ride a bus to another school and compete in a track meet. They loved everything about being on the track team except running. <laughs> you see, every time he said, I tell them to warm up, take a few laps around the track, he says, all I get are excuses and complaints. He says, and then when it came time to assigning what event they would be in, no one or very few would want to run in any race that was longer than a sprint. Because you see, they just didn't want to experience that adversity, that discomfort of that labored breath that a long race takes, or pushing through the pain of fatigued muscles. And sometimes, I think we can feel like those students. When the race of life that is set before us involves the discomfort of adversity, that in order for us to endure through this race of life, it's going to involve some painful trials of life. Now certainly, certainly there are trials of life that are the consequences of our wrong choices. Like Jonah who made a blatant choice of disobedience and ended up in the belly of the fish. But even in those experiences, God is so good, he reaches out in mercy and compassion. But this morning, I want to focus on those times of adversity, those trials of life that we face just because we live in a broken world and we live and work with broken people. And the Apostle James provides us with some perplexing words of wisdom concerning these trials of life. James 1-2 says, Consider it pure joy. Not just any joy, but pure joy. Another translation says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face the trials of many kind, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. So James is telling us that we should count it all joy when we experience these trials of life because it fosters this important attribute of endurance. Well, James isn't the only apostle with this admonition. Look what Paul wrote. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, that same quality. And then he says, and endurance develops the strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So Paul is agreeing with James that we should rejoice, count it all joy when we face these trials of life. And then Peter adds this truth. He says, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purified gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So here we have three great apostles admonishing us, encouraging us to rejoice and be glad when we face adversity because it's through these trials of life that we have the opportunity to develop this Christ-like characteristic of endurance. We are to be also glad when Peter says there's going to be an eternal reward when we do persevere and our faith will be strengthened and purified. 
Now we can read these scriptures and we can understand them as truth. But the problem is not with our understanding, the problem is with our feelings. Because you see, it doesn't feel good when you're living in that place of adversity. It doesn't feel good when you are in that difficult season and you cannot see an end in sight. You see, it's easy to recognize the benefit of a difficult time in our life and we look back and we can see that there's a benefit, we can see some good that's come out of it. But when you are going through a difficult time, it is so hard to see any good because you see, it doesn't feel good. And when it doesn't feel good, our feelings define and dominate our attitudes and behaviors. Now I wanna be clear here, the apostles are not saying that we have to feel joyful because you are not going to feel joyful when you get that diagnosis that you have cancer. You're not gonna feel joyful when suddenly you find out you've lost your job. You're not gonna feel joyful when someone betrays your trust. So the question is how do we embrace this paradoxical truth that all three apostles espouse that we are to count it all joy when we face the trials of life when we don't feel joyful? How can we be triumphant over the trials of life, over the adversity of life when we don't feel triumphant while we are living through them? So let's look at our solution book, the Bible, and look to see what two men did, the Apostle Paul and his co-worker Silas. You see, we have to go back to about 49 AD. Paul has already finished his first missionary journey and he is about to embark with his companions on the second missionary journey. And so his thought is, that I will just go back to the province of Asia and I'll just continue where I left off. And so they begin to head in that direction when it says the Holy Spirit stopped them, prevented them from going in that direction. And so they said, okay, we'll go north to the province of Bithynia. And again, it says the Holy Spirit prevented them from going there. And then one day, when they're in the port city of Troas, God gives to Paul a vision. And in that vision, the Lord reveals to him that he needs to go to a new area, to the province of Macedonia. It is there in northern Greece. This is the area that you are to preach the gospel. And so they alter their, tra uh, their travel plans and they go to Philippi. And this is what we read in Acts 16. On the Sabbath, when we are a little way outside of the city to a, um, a riverbank, where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. Apparently in this Gentile city, there isn't even a synagogue because Paul, whenever he entered into a new Gentile city, typically would go to a synagogue and first preach there to those Jews and then expand to the Gentiles. But we read here, he goes to a riverbank where he hears that some people are gathered to pray. You see, to have a synagogue, you have to have at least 10 male worshipers of God. So you can see the situation in Philippi, but there's some women who are by the riverbank. And so Paul and Silas go there and they begin to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. 
and the women embrace this message, they're saved, they're water baptized. And apparently this is happening day after day. The good news of Jesus Christ is beginning to spread. And I am sure Paul and Silas are saying, yes, we are centered in God's will. Look at how they are responding to the message of Christ. But there's always this one problem. On their way to the river, there is this demon-possessed psychic slave girl who continues to harangue them each day. And so on this one day, Paul turns to her and he casts out the demon and the girl is healed. Can you imagine all of those gathered by the riverbank and they see this miracle, this young girl who they have seen day after day is now freed from that demonic possession. But the problem was not everyone was thrilled. You see, the girl's masters, slave masters, They realized that her ability to tell the future because of that demonic possession, that she was no longer able to make money for them. And so they were furious and they dragged Paul and Silas to the city officials and this is what happens. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with rods. They were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the inner dungeon, clamped their feet in stocks. Everything had been going great. People had been saved. A miracle has taken place, yet here Paul and Silas haven't just been beaten, they have been severely beaten, and now they are chained in an inner dungeon with no way of escape, not sure what the morning will bring. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You have been obedient. You have done everything that the Holy Spirit has led you to do. You have even had the faith to believe for a miracle for a girl to be delivered. People have been saved, yet here you are in pain, in chains, and facing possible execution in the morning. I think my instinctive response would have been, why God? I've done everything you've said. I've been obedient, yet here I am in chains and pain. But incredibly, this is not the response of Paul and Silas. Look at how they responded. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. They prayed and sang praises. I understand the praying part. I'd be praying too. I'd be praying for strength. I'd be praying for healing. I'd be praying for a way of escape, right? But they're not just praying. They are also what? praising. Praising God with such joyful heart that these prisoners are listening. I think they're listening because they can't believe it. Now we don't know what songs of praise Paul and Silas are singing, but this we do know. Verse 26, suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundation and all the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. And then instead of fleeing, Paul and Silas stayed there and preached the gospel to the jailer and eventually the jailer and his whole family are saved. Now it makes sense 
that Paul and Silas would be triumphant and praising God after the miracle, after the earthquake, after the jailer and his family have been saved, after they have been freed from their chains. But incredibly, what did we read? They were praising God before the miracle. They were triumphant in their spirits before the miracle. They were triumphant over the trial while they were still living in the trial. See, Paul and Silas understood the power of prayer, but they also understood the power of praise to foster a triumphant spirit in the midst of adversity. And so that means when we are going through a difficult time, I want you to know and be assured that God does want us to pray. He wants us to bring whatever we are going through to him in prayer. Prayer is an important first response, but church, prayer is not the only response. You see, when things get challenging, when we are in the midst of adversity, we will not feel like praising God. Crying out to God, yes. But we need to also praise God. Praise him even when our minds are filled with all of those why questions for which we have no answers. But you know, it's not easy to praise God in the midst of adversity. It's not easy to praise God when you are feeling anxious and worried and you're questioning why this is happening. It's not easy to praise God when things don't feel good. So how did Paul and Silas Praise God with genuine praise. Not with a facade of praise, but with genuine praise. Well, I believe we can do what they did when we praise God for who he is. When we remind ourselves of his character, we can be triumphant even in a situation where we don't feel triumphant when we make the choice to praise God for who he is because that reminds us of God's character. See, when we begin to praise God for who he is, we take our eyes off of the problem and our focus turns to the problem solver. And you see, that is exactly what David did when King Saul tried to kill him. You see, King Saul sent out an order for David to be arrested and to be killed. Now David escapes, but then he meets with Saul's son whose name was Jonathan. He was David's best friend. And in this conversation, look at what we read. 1 Samuel 20, David says, Jonathan, what have I done? What's my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? Now, I can understand why David is so bewildered because David has only done, he's done everything to be loyal to Saul. He's had victory after victory on the battlefield and he's done it all for Saul. So he doesn't understand, why does Saul want to kill me? What have I done? And in Psalm 59, we read about this time of adversity in David's life. He begins with prayer. He pours out his heart in prayer. Look at what we read. He says, rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. They have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting, Lord, though I have not sinned or offended them. I've done nothing wrong, 
yet they prepared to attack me. My enemies come out at night snarling like dogs. David is praying, Lord, rescue me. But then, like Paul and Silas, not only does David pray, but then he shifts, shifts his prayer to praise. Look at what he next says. But as for me, that's an intentional choice. But as for me, he says, I will, I'm making a choice, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love, for you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. Oh my strength, to you I will sing praises, for you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. Praise turned David's focus from the overwhelming despair of his circumstances to the awesome character of God. David countered all of his feelings of hopelessness and despair and bewilderment. He countered all of those feelings by praising God for who he is. Praise God for his strength. Praise God for his faithfulness. Praise God for his unfailing love. Praise empowered David to be triumphant in spirit, even in the midst of adversity. So too, when we are in that season that is so difficult and we don't feel joyful and we don't feel triumphant and we don't understand why we are going through what we are going through, like David, like Paul, like Silas, it is important to pray and cry out for God's help but it is also important to embrace the power of praise, reminding ourselves of God's goodness, his grace, his faithfulness, his goodness, his unfailing love, praising God for who he is in, a, in the midst of adversity will foster a triumphant spirit that will triumph over feelings of hopelessness and despair. That is the power of praise. So we can be triumphant over whatever trial we are living through by praying to God and then praising him for who he is. But there is something more. We can also remind ourselves of what God has done. Eight miles north of the ancient city of Jericho is a place called Gilgal. And it was at Gilgal that Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, he took 12 large stones and he erected a memorial of remembrance. You see, it was at this time that God had given the word to Joshua that it was time to lead the Israelites out of the wilderness and that it was time to go into the promised land. But there was a problem. There was an obstacle in the way because between the wilderness and the promised land was the Jordan River. There were no boats. There was no bridge. How are they going to get from the wilderness to the promised land? But God stepped in and he performed a miracle. Just as he had parted the waters of the Red Sea for that first generation of Israelites when they were freed from their bondage in Egypt, he now parts the water of the Jordan River so that the Israelites can leave the wilderness place and enter into the promised land. But God had given Joshua this instruction to send 12 men to go back into that river while the waters are still parted and collect 12 stones, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. 
And so 12 men went in during the middle of the miracle, picked up a large stone and carried it to the place where they camped in Gilgal. And that is where Joshua erected this memorial of remembrance. You see, what was the purpose of these stones? Well, God knew that when these Israelites began to settle in the promised land, they were going to face adversity. There were going to be trials. And so this memorial of 12 stones was to be a constant reminder for them and their children and their children's children that a miracle of God had parted the waters of the Jordan River, that God was able to make a way where there was no way. This memorial was to remind them that no matter what difficulty, what trial, what adversity they would face, even in the promised land, that God could make a way where there seemed to be no way. These stones of remembrance was to strengthen their faith so they could be triumphant over adversity even while they were living in it. And that truth remains truth for us today. You see, when we are going through that difficult time, when there is a Jordan River in front of us with no way to cross, there are stones of remembrance that we can look to that will inspire our faith and foster that triumphant spirit. You see, we too can look to the miracles of God that we find in that solution book called the Bible. We can look to the miracle of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. We can look to the time that God protected Daniel in the lion's den or when Jesus did all of those miracles of healing and provision. But you know what, we're not limited to just what the Bible has documented. The Lord wants us all to remember what he has done in our lives and the lives of our family and in our friends. Those acts of provision, protection, healing, guidance. He wants us to remember. You know, last fall, Keely Hilliard gave a testimony of how she was in the hospital fighting for her life with COVID and how she actually died. But God stepped in and made a way and brought her back to life and continues to heal her. You see, that is a stone of God's faithfulness, God's stone of power and mercy and grace that I want to remember when I need a miracle in my life. We can, we can remember what God has done in the scriptures, but God has done great things for us that we need to remember. See, when we rehearse these stones of remembrance, it instills in us a confidence that, of what God can do, and our hope is renewed, and enables us to persevere with that triumphant spirit. So we can be triumphant over the trials of life even when they don't feel good, when we praise God for who he is, when we remember what God has done. And there's a third thing. We can stand on the promises of God. Do you know that there are over 7,000 promises of God in the scriptures? Promises that we can and should embrace. You see, when we are in that season of adversity and it's getting hard to persevere and it doesn't feel good, here is an awesome promise you can stand on. Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you. Be not not dismayed for I am what? Your God. I will what? Strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That is a powerful promise. 
but there's more. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength. I love this part. An ever-present help, what? In trouble. He is a present tense God. The power he had in the past, the power he'll have in the future, is still a power he has in the present. We worship a now God. And then here's a promise that I've stood on many times in my life. And we know that for those who love God, you love God, right? For those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. See, this promise tells me and gives me the confidence that no matter what I'm going through, God can work it for good. God does not allow the pain and the suffering that we go through during these times of adversity to be wasted. Through these times of adversity, God will work good. I think this is why the psalmist was able to declare that those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. We can plant our tears and in, through times of prayer and praise. And God says there will be a harvest of joy. Isaiah says this, that for those who grieve, he will bestow upon them this, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. I love that our God understands and knows the pain and the heartbreak that we go through when we are experiencing these trials of life. And he says, plant them in my hands. Plant them through prayer. Plant them through praise. And I will take the ashes and make beauty. Where you have mourned, there will be joy. Where there has been despair, there will be praise. See, the promises of God as we go through these difficult times, this is where they become more than just a verse we've memorized, something that we post on our refrigerator. These verses become living truth that anchors our faith because they remind us that the God that we worship is not only a problem solver and a miracle worker, he's a promise keeper. So how can we be triumphant over the trials of life when we're still going through them and they don't feel good, praise God for who he is. Remember who your God is. Remember what he has done, those stones of remembrance, and stand on the promises of God. Would you bow your head? I began this message this morning by saying that everyone has a race that is set before them. And what's, what's the same about every race is that there will be difficult times. Times when our faith will be tested. Times when it just doesn't feel good. And maybe that is you this morning. Maybe that's the season of that race of life that you're in. And it may be that trial, that, that adversity that you are living through right now might be a health issue. Maybe it's a family issue, a broken relationship, 
tension between siblings, tension between parents and children, tensions between a husband and wife. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe it's just you have a job, but the people you work with are such a trial of your faith. It's not easy. Maybe you've had some hope and that's been dashed. Or maybe you've been praying for something for so long and you, there seems to be no answer in sight. And it's, it's difficult running the race that's set before you because it doesn't feel good. If that is you this morning, can you just raise your hand? Can you just slip up your hand? Amen. Hands all up. I'm going to ask if the whole church would just stand for a moment, if we'd all stand together. Those of you that raised your hand, I'm going to ask you to do something that may be a little bit out of your comfort zone, but I want you to know we are a church family, right? We are family. And the scripture says we are to bear one another's burdens, that we are to pray for one another. And so this morning, if you raise your hand and you're going through that difficult season, understand God sees what you are going through and that you are here, whether you're watching online or you're here in this place, it's for a reason and a purpose. And he wants you to leave today triumphant in spirit. And so I'm going to ask that if you raised your hand, I'm inviting you to come here forward and as a church, we're going to pray for you because there is power in united prayer. There is power when the church comes together and we're going to pray for whatever you are going through, whether it's a health issue, a family issue, um, whether it's you know, a, a financial issue, whatever it is, I'm going to invite you to come forward. It's not, we're not saying you don't have faith enough or anything like that. It's like, this is the season of life I'm in right now, and I, I want God to step in and do a miracle. So I ask you, would you, anyone, just come forward, and we're going to pray together. Please don't hesitate. Please don't hesitate. There is power when we come and pray together. Whatever your need is, I'm going to ask those of you standing that as I pray, that you would just extend your hand. I'm going to ask any of the prayer ministers to come alongside and just pray as I am praying out loud, that we're just going to just, we're going to cover everyone that is here. Come all the way forward. Come all the way forward. Dear Father, we come to you. You are an awesome God. We acknowledge your power and your sovereignty. We acknowledge what your son did on the cross that gives us access to the throne of grace. He gives us access to your throne. And I'm asking right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would meet each person that is standing before you. People that need healing in their body. In the name of Jesus, we are asking that you would heal every part of their body from the head to the toe. Father, we're asking that you would release them from the fear that the diagnosis has given them. Release them from that fear. Father, we pray for those who are in a family situation. 
where there is strife, where there is discord, where there isn't peace, where there isn't unity. Father, we're asking you to step into that situation. In the name of Jesus, sit, just speak into that situation, Lord. Turn hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the parents. Turn hearts of the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. Turn hearts of sibling to sibling once again. Let there be unity. Let there be peace. Father, we ask for those who are coming because they're in a financial need. We ask, Father, that you would just bring um, open doors into their lives. We're asking that you would bring people into their life that would give them counsel and direction. We're asking for open doors of employment, Father. We're asking blessing in the workplace. We're asking for blessing in the marketplace. Father, we're asking blessing upon blessing that would come into their lives, that they will see the power of God to be their provider, will make a way where there seems to be no way. Father, we pray for those who need deliverance of addictions or any kind of oppression, that there would be a freedom and a release this day. Father, you know the need of each one who is here this morning. Dashed hopes, unrealized dreams, whatever the need is, asking in the power and the authority that is ours in the name of Jesus, that you would part their Jordan River. You would part their Jordan River, Lord and make a way where there seems to be no way. Now we have prayed the prayer. Now on the screen are the words of David, David's words of prayer. And as a church, we're going to, we're going to speak these words of praise. Are you ready? We're going to say it together. Ready? I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. Oh my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, oh God, are my refuge, the one who shows me unfailing love. Do you see the part where it says, each morning I will sing? Each morning you will sing. Each morning you will sing. No matter what it looks like, each morning you're going to sing. You're going to sing, sing praises. Now we're going to sing this great song called Take Courage. Take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. Are you ready to sing? All right.